From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse Live, a bonus episode recorded live at Kramer Books here in DuPont Circle. Call it a group therapy session with riders and transit nerds. We'll get their sense of how Safe Track is going. We'll take your questions and commiserations. And episode 7.5 starts now. The D.C. Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays in crowded conditions on trains and platforms. There are so many stoppages, things that break, people getting stuck. What are some best practices so that, like, we don't all have panic attacks down there? All right, everybody, thank you for making it out tonight on a Monday. I'm Martin DeCaro. I cover transportation at WAMU 88.5, and I'm here with Brendan Sweeney. He is the producer and editor of Metropocalypse. He is the driving force behind the podcast, and he is the person who has to deal with me most of the week. So what's up, man? I'm dealing with you. Yes, again. <laughs> yes, in a live interaction. Um, so, well, we're here. We're in the sixth week of Safe Track, and the big news story right now is the near miss on Metro last week. Right. It's a so-called red signal violation on the tracks. Um, two red line trains almost collided between Wheaton and Glenmont Station on Tuesday, Tell us about what happened. So this started in, in a very uh, kind of a quiet way. Tuesday night, uh, July 5th, around 7.15, 8 o'clock, Metro's official Twitter feed, at Metro Rail Info, tweeted a possible red signal violation. Well, that's serious. That's about as serious a safety violation you can get on a transit system. That means the train operator was supposed to stop a train and kept going. Now, don't get the idea that a train was hurtling down the tracks at, you know, 70 miles an hour towards another train. But it's still a, as serious a violation as you can get in a transit system. And the train operator, as it turns out, was fired. So how did we get there? Well, on Friday afternoon, I caught wind that something was going on, and I called Metro Media Relations, and they weren't in fortress mode. They said they would give me the email that Paul Wiedefeld, the new general manager, had sent to all Metro staff announcing what happened in some detail, not all detail, and that the train operator had been fired. So at around 7, 15, 8 o'clock, in that 7, 8 o'clock window on Tuesday night, train operator had a red signal, decided to go through it anyway. Went over the interlocking, the switch, between Glenmont and Wheaton stations, therefore putting his or her train on the same track as an oncoming train. This was described as a near-miss collision by Metro's general manager, Paul Wiedefeld. Two track inspectors were out there as well. They had to dodge the oncoming train. So you might be asking yourself, how in the world is this possible when you supposedly have automated trains, at least to some degree, and we're seven years after the Fort Totten disaster in which two trains collided? That's right. So in 2009, um, how many people here were here in 2009 and remember the, uh, the Fort Totten crash? It was, a, it was a very, very traumatic event, and it's actually one of the things from this podcast that I found really interesting working with Martin is his, his historical memory of all the different calamities that have befallen the system. But even after all the different things that we've had in the last couple of years, I think 2009 and Fort Totten really sticks out in everyone's mind as being a really profound thing that happened. Now, one of the takeaways for that involved or one of the recommendations from the safety uh, studies afterwards involved controlling cars automatically versus having drivers. All right, so in transit speak, it's known as ATO, automatic train operation. 
that is a subsystem of the overall computer system that governs the spacing of trains, which is called automatic train control. So Metro has not been on ATO, automatic operation, since the 09 disaster. They've been bringing it back slowly on the red line, eight car trains, rush hour only. So all of you have been there when you're on a packed train and it's going back and forth like this or the train operator pulls into a station, he doesn't quite get to the end of the platform, so he says, hold on, train moving, moves the train up a few more feet. That's because the train's not being automatically operated. The conductor, or the operator, is doing it himself or herself in the cab. Just like everybody drives a car at their own speed, some people are lead foot, some people slam on their brakes. Same thing with the train. Some train operators accelerate faster than others. So that's why you get that herky-jerky motion when you're on the trains in the morning and the evening. So under automatic train operation, a train would not be able to pass a red signal. But the train was under manual operation last Tuesday night. Now there's another system called automatic train protection that makes a train break at a red signal. However, there are certain circumstances with permission the train operator will then manually operate the train past the red signal with a top speed of 15 miles an hour. The computer will cap it at 15 miles an hour. And if the operator goes faster than that, the computer will break the train. In this case, the operator did not have permission to pass the red signal. Moreover, as mentioned, the operator crossed the switch between Glenmont and, and Wheaton and put the train on the track as the oncoming train. So we still have some unanswered questions here. How, train, how close the trains got, we don't know. Could have been 100 feet, could have been 1,000 feet. But we know that they were going at slow speeds because the oncoming train also had a slow speed command because that train was prepared to go over the interlocking also. So I sit in the newsroom next to Martin, and I was listening to him all day calling various experts. And trying sources. To, trying to find out what the distance was. It was actually an example of the strange minutia of your job. I just want to get a feel of the from the crowd here. How peak geek was that? Because <laughs> this is one of the perennial tensions we have with this podcast is that APTO, I'm the, I'm the transit novice. Sometimes he goes into acronym mode and I you gotta snap me the out eyes glaze, glaze over. But my big yeah. takeaway from that was that somebody affirmatively decided to override a safety system and potentially set up head-on collision between trains. Yeah under, really scary. yeah, under manual operation, ultimately there's nothing you can do if the train operator decides to overrun a red signal. Now, again, if it tops 15 miles an hour, the train will break, and the Rail Operations Control Center, which is in Landover, Maryland, can also stop a train. Now, this is not the first time this has happened recently. You'll remember in February, train operator overran a red signal on the orange line late at night, came within 200 feet of another train. Does anyone remember that story? Please, everyone say, yes, I heard your story on the air the next so morning. So outraged. There are f close to 50 red signal overruns that the Federal Transit Administration is investigating as part of their safety oversight of Metro Rail. It's a very serious problem. Now, most red signal overruns are at low speeds and a short distance, and most of them happen in rail yards. But that does not minimize what happened last Tuesday night. And again, we don't know yet how close the trains came. We don't know how many people were on, uh, either, s on either train that was involved. But you know, that's cold comfort. When you uh, go to Google, you can Google in NTSB 2009 West Falls Church Collision. 
That was a low-speed collision at the West Falls Church rail yard. Uh, a train was going 17 miles an hour and hit another train that was stopped. And just look at the damage. So this could have been a, uh, it would have been a calamity even, you know, had no one been injured or killed. Because what does it tell you? That Metro's safety culture is still not there. How does an operator do this? Not all the facts are in. We're still looking at it. But that's been the story I've been working on, Well, basically since the middle of last week. Episode 8. So, um, yes, and we're going to get more into it in episode 8. So right. we want to open up and play Stump Martin, Ask Martin Difficult well, that's not Questions. Difficult. Um, but I did want to underscore one thing that um, may be a misnomer here. It's called Safe Track, right? We would assume that it was about safety. It's not. It is and it isn't. But, yes, I- it's a little bit misleading. How many of you have checked Metro's progress reports online about what they're accomplishing with Safe Track, right? We're talking about the fundamental reconstruction of the original sections of railroad. Wooden railroad ties, for instance. Go out to Braddock Road. It's an open-air station. You can look right down into the tracks. You'll see railroad ties that date to the station's opening, which was 1983. Reagan Airport opened in 1977. You can see right there on the tracks. The railroad ties are splintered. They look like they're about 35, 40 years old. So safe track is to, even if everything else was going right with Metro, they would still have to do this because a railroad doesn't last forever. It lasts about 35, 40 years. So they're replacing rail. They're replacing railroad ties. They're replacing the ballast. Ballast are those stones that you see. You know, there's four different kinds of a railroad foundation. Ballast is one. It's the stones that move. Uh, The fasteners. They're doing all that. Electric cables. Everything that you'd have to do, say, if you own a house for a certain amount of time. The roof doesn't last forever. The air conditioning needs to be replaced, etc. So they're doing all this work that has to be done while also dealing with an array of other issues, the lack of a safety culture, um, financial problems. We can get into that if you'd like. You know, the so-called death spiral, when you're losing riders and have to raise fares. There's no fare increase this year. They're saying there won't be another fare increase next year. That remains to be seen. So Metro is dealing with an array of problems that are not unique to Metro. Public transit systems across the country are under a lot of pressure these days. There's been underinvestment across the board. Metro does not have an official figure yet. They're compiling one at how much money it would cost to get everything they own up to a state of good repair. Other transit systems do have this figure. If you look at the BART system in San Francisco, Bay Area Rapid Transit, that opened four years before Metro Rail. They have a maintenance backlog of about $9 billion, with a B, dollars. Half of it is funded. The Federal Transit Administration places the nationwide figure for public transit systems at about $80 billion just to get everything they have up to a state of good repair. That says nothing about expansion. How many of you have been stuck at the Roslyn bottleneck on the silver, orange, and blue lines waiting to get through? Right? There's no second tunnel to help out the poor blue line, which is at 12-minute headways during rush hour. That tunnel is going to cost more than the money that you and I have in our pockets, I think. It's going to cost many billions of dollars, all unfunded. So that's a little context for you about the array of problems Metro is facing. I think we've reached peak geek. Okay, so... You, um, you're only allowed to call me a geek twice. Okay. That's, that's, that was we, the We've been time. using this term a little bit too much as a pejorative. We should say that this is a, a term of love. That's um, right. So well, I have very heartfelt feelings for you, too, having you. spent okay. the last exactly. seven weeks doing this podcast Hold up with, you with you in small studios. All right. So we do want to open up the, um, the mics. I'm Sarah, huh. and I live in Cleveland Park. Come on. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the death spiral and sort of where... 
our metro system is going to be at the end of this. And if, you know, they've been telling people, don't ride metro. So people are do taking other modes of transportation, getting into new habits. Are people ever going to come back to metro in the same way? And where is that going to leave us financially and existentially? Well, Thanks. existentially. We do have a philosophy section over there. We can... Uh, so I, uh, you know, as a journalist, we try to stay away from hyperbole, you know, death spiral. That term was used by Richard White. Anyone here remember Richard White? He was Metro's longest serving general manager from around 2005 to, no, uh, 1995 to 2005 thereabouts. And he warned the board upon his departure that Metro is in a death spiral. In transit speak, you know, don't don't think of you know like a tornado or maelstrom, you know, sweeping away uh, all the all the assets of the. Re In transit speak, it means your ridership is flat or decreasing, your expenses are going up, so you feel the need to raise fares to make up the difference. But when you raise fares, you drive more riders away, therefore widening the gap even further, and you're in this you know irreversible death spiral. Metro is not there yet, however. It is in danger of getting there. So that brings us to SafeTrack. So why was SafeTrack necessary? Well, <coughs> Metro's new GM decided that instead of dragging out all this maintenance for years, accelerate the pace of maintenance, get it done, restore the system's reliability as soon as you can to bring people back. Because uh, Brendan brought up the point before about is safe track about safety. Well, yes. I mean, if you just let something fall apart, eventually trains could derail. You may have a catastrophe on your hands. But it's more about reliability. I mean, how many of you have been late to work because of something? Hands, please. Show of hands. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Everybody. That's not how public transit's supposed to work. It's supposed to be reliable, right? It only works if it's reliable and affordable. And we've all gotten to that point where oh, i got to take Metro home. I work in Van Ness with Brendan. I often don't want to deal with a red line plus a transfer to the green line to get home because I just don't know if I'm going to waste 20 minutes underground. So SafeTrack was designed to get all this work that would take three or four years done in one year and hope to return the system to a state of reliability where people will stop fleeing it because it's no longer you know, reliable. Metro, for the first time last year, admitted publicly that people were quitting the trains because you just couldn't rely upon them. One day it's 20 minutes, the next day it's 40 minutes, right? Even if you knew every day it was going to take 40 minutes, at least that's 40 minutes a day you can plan. Get up the same day every, every day uh, to go to work. Because, I, I don't know how close any of you follow this, and this is one of the positives of having a public get-together, you know, I'm, all, I'm immersed in this stuff all the time. How many of you have read any of Metro's vital sign reports, which they post online, and I report on these all the time? Probably none of you. Well, they're all up there. Check them out. You can see how bad on-time performance is. Lowest level it's ever been since Metro started recording it in 2010. Rail on-time performance. It's dismal. Now, there were some reasons why it got really bad last year. Just one last point. Remember the... Uh, uh, trans uh, uh, the fire on the uh, eastern end of the silver, orange, and blue line, there was a transformer blew up. Well, that really killed on-time performance for those three lines for a few months. But even with that, I think you all can say you don't need to look at statistics, right? system has not been reliable. So one thing I find a little bit stunning from this is that you said they only started keeping track of it in 2010. <laughs> yeah. 
So the, yeah, the current metric for on-time performance was in 2010. And you can look all down the line. And you know, that's one of the things we wanted to accomplish with this podcast. People are paying attention to things that they otherwise wouldn't care about if the system were operating correctly. How many of you pay attention to which rail car series you're on? There we go. The hot cars, right? The hot cars. You want to avoid the hot cars? Oh, everyone knows what the new trains are like, right? Because they're totally different than the old ones. But you can go online, too, and look at how pitiful some of these rail cars are performing. performing. They're, break, they're breaking down all the time. And as you may know from listening, and we have a question coming up, from listening to WAMU885, uh, McKinsey & Company was a big consulting firm that Metro hired. They produced two major reports for the Transit Authority. I obtained both of them and reported on them. They were not public documents. And you could see in depth how Metro was unable to fix their rail cars promptly and get them back out onto the line. So these are the types of problems that have little to do with safe track, right? Rail car maintenance has nothing to do with the railroad. So to answer Sarah's question, Metro expects that people will come back when reliability returns. But that has a lot more to do than replacing railroad ties and fasteners. There's a lot that goes into that. One key thing about safe track is it's not regional all at once. It's localized two to three weeks at a time. So people, uh, you don't give people a lot of time to form a new habit. Although we have reported that some people have, and they like finding, they found a new bus route that works for them. They like VRE. They like to walk. They like to bike. Lauren Ober, the host of The Big Listen on WAMU 88.5, no, has a question no, for me. I was trying to keep it anonymous. I was just going to say I'm Lauren from Truxton Circle in, in D.C., Ward 5. Okay, so yesterday I flew in um, to National Airport, and normally I would just hop on the metro because there's a, it's really easy when I get off to get to my house, but I was like, no way. I'm taking a cab, but I got to the cab line, and it was like 200 people long, okay? So I think that maybe some other people, well, one, you could only get into D.C. from National, and two, uh, I think there were some people who were like, they, they heard some things, like they're not taking Metro either. And so I was like, well, I'm not waiting in the cab line, so I'm going to chance it with Metro. But while I was like swiping my card and going through the gate, I was thinking, okay, do I have a bottle of water? Do I have any snacks? What am I going to do if I get stuck in the tunnel? Like I was trying to like plan my escape route and or like what I would do, who in my car would help me if I needed it, who I would have to help, like would I have to do any kind of CPR, like, you know, I mean, these are like, I'm not crazy, am I? And also, yeah, wait, so hold on. No, but but so my question is, and it wasn't just an anecdote, was like, are there actually, because this, it seems like there are so many stoppages, things that break, people getting stuck. What are some best practices for, like, the person who's chancing it so that, like, we don't all have panic attacks down there? I don't know if you can help me out on this one, but I'd like some tips. Well, I'm going to let the expert weigh in, but I will reaffirm that um, the, the fear is real and that it's a strange situation. Martin and I have talked about this. It's a very, very strange situation when you realize that we all snicker when you say that. But there is something that's happening that when your train stops and it's been there for a while, it starts creeping into your mind. And that I feel like that might end up affecting me psychologically in my transportation choices. I don't think the fear is totally irrational. I think Metro is a safe system, but it's not safe enough. Really, the only perfect safety record is what? Zero fatalities, zero incidents. Best practices. I think it is wise to bring a bottle of water and a flashlight. I think everyone's smartphone has a flashlight right now. 
But if there is an issue, stay on the train. Do not get out of the train unless you are instructed to. Flashback to, what was it, March or February or April? Matter of fact, a guy works at uh, NPR, Chuck Holmes. Was on, uh, it was at, up at Friendship Heights. A piece of train had fallen off and made contact with the third rail and caused what sounded like explosions outside the rail cars. It wasn't explosions, but you don't know that when you're on the train. And smoke starts drifting into the car. And the operator is panicked. He's not telling you anything. This is how Chuck described it. Not telling you where you're going or how long you're going to be there. And you can see on the faces of passengers, the uncertainty starting to creep in. The memories of Lafont Plaza start to creep in. And he went on Twitter and saw some amateur accounts had tweeted what was going on and made him feel a little bit better, but that's not you know, available to everybody. However, someone on that train did lose it and opened up the emergency doors. What happens? More smoke comes in. Train can't move because they're disabled if there's a door open. So, I mean, it's easy for me to say right here, right? If you feel like your life is in danger, you may not you may say to hell with it. I'm getting off the train. Don't, unless you absolutely have to, or the train instructors, or let's hope it doesn't get to this point, firefighters. So now, how often does this happen? Well, it happens too much if we're talking about it here. But, you know, since LaFont Plaza, uh, there have been maybe one or two other incidents where there have been these situations where people have self-evacuated, they call it, getting off the train themselves. Metro is actually dealing with this problem now of smoke incidents, which are caused by water infiltration and muck and garbage and filth building up on third rail insulators. Amazingly, this was not happening with the regularity it needed to before Paul Wiedefeld took over. He has a special team now who's on the red line, which is the real culprit area. This can happen on anywhere in the system when you have tunnels, right? But uh, up on the red line, which was tunneled before a special boring technique was... Uh, a common, uh, commonplace here in the United States. Uh, basically from, what is it, Medical Center up to Bethesda, they have real problems with water leakage. That area opened in 1984, and they knew they had a problem in 1985. But what does that require? you got to keep going in there and cleaning it out. Metro wasn't doing that enough. So there actually have been fewer of these arcing insulators, smoke incidents, water issues recently because Metro has been doing a better job handling that situation up on the, the stretches of the red line. But how much clearance is there if I do panic and I do open the door? Can I squeeze through in th in the tunnel and like what like which right. direct like how? Good question. Good qu no, no, it's a good question. I'm just wondering like where do I go? I, all right. So best practices, please read those signs. You just kind of see them and your eyes just kind of cross over all those signs on the trains. Read those signs of what to do if you have to evacuate a train. Well, I mean, it's good to be prepared. Correct. You're only supposed to exit the train on one side, the side opposite the third rail. Okay, do not exit the third rail side. That'll be the last thing you ever do. Here comes my shameless plug. One thing we're very excited about, Martin is going to get safety training, so he's allowed to go onto the tracks. This, this is a real thing. It's going to be a great episode. So, uh, real quick, uh, well, mini anecdote before you, uh, nice tie, by the way, I like that. Um, so, uh, I, I had this safety training, we had to take a multiple choice test, and we had so I'm sitting there in Metro's headquarters going over all this, and in a very matter-of-fact way, the safety uh, teacher is showing us how to step over the third rail. And I raised my hand and I said, track, is the third rail off when they're doing that? She goes, no. She goes, it's just when contractors and Metro personnel are out on the tracks, uh, sometimes the third rail is shut off. 
But in an active work zone where there's single tracking and you have people out doing, say, emergency track work, third rail is on. And she said, people are stepping over this. Just and they, they show you the technique. And I said, you could put a suitcase of $20 million on the other side of that third rail. I am not stopping over the third rail when it's live at 750 volts. So, and, and of course, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't be wearing dress shoes at the time. I'm imagining audio of you having, like, crying as you're on the tracks trying to deal with that. Or, you know, using some of my New York vocabulary. Sir, come on up. Identify yourself. Ask us a question. My name is Adam. Uh, I live in Alexandria and work in DuPont Circle. And I'm glad you mentioned those giant signs with all the emergency evacuation instructions. Um, because uh, I know a couple years ago, around the time that they were redesigning uh, the Metro map, they replaced those signs. Previously, they had all the pictures that show when you're on an aerial platform or in a tunnel where the third rail is and where you are and where you shouldn't be. And now they've taken all of those images out and just replaced them with probes. And I, I remember uh, it was in an earlier Metropocalypse episode when you had the folks from uh, Carlos Rosario helping English language learners navigate the system. And all I can think about is they just made it that much harder for the people who are most vulnerable during an emergency to act safely. Do you know what the rationale was uh, behind that? Because it seems a pretty major move in the wrong direction. I actually, I do not have an answer for you as to why they made that decision. Um, but I could look into it. But, yeah, that raises... Uh, you know, all has only has to happen once, right, for it to be an across-the-board failure. Um, yes, we had the, the principal from that school on, and she's doing an amazing job with her students and helping non-English uh, native language speakers uh, adjust to the system. Metro is not an easy system to use. I mean, it's not all altogether clear where you're going, where the signs are. I just spoke to somebody who uh, went to France. She doesn't speak a word of French. She used their subway, no problem at all. And I hear from all, all the time, I hear Metro users, even people who are used to the system, say it's just not an easy system to use. And uh, that's an excellent point. I actually wasn't even aware of that. Uh, so thank you for raising it. Anyone else have a question? Uh, my name's Cole. I live in Roslyn and work in Navy Yard. And my question is, uh, stories about rude, uncaring, or just unknowledgeable Metro employees are legion. But... Is it really as bad as Twitter and everybody's stories make it seem? And if so, how can Metro fix that? Well, nothing is ever as bad as it appears on Twitter. I think we know that, right? <laughs> Although Twitter certainly is a great help for a reporter who's following the day-to-day -day operations of the system. I can see when things go wrong right away, faster than Metro knows. There is an issue with frontline personnel. Um, it's a... It's a I guess it's a work culture thing, and the new general manager is trying to take care of that. They have new uniforms now. Uh, he has put out multiple bulletins to all staff about how they're supposed to compose themselves and interact with passengers. Metro in the customer service department, let's be honest, as journalists are not supposed to editorialize, they stink. You know, they stink. Uh, they're, you know, they're trying to get better, and they're addressing it in a number of ways. Uh, I know they've hired four social media experts to come on board and help with customer service through the social media channels that they use. But y you're right. I mean, it's, it's anecdotal, but it's real. You have enough people complaining about unhelpful station managers. It's not a rarity. It's, it's far too often. I mean, it should never happen that way, right? This is supposed to be a professional outfit in the nation's capital. And yet, I think about my bus ride this morning, and I had the sweetest bus driver. So, so it is kind of funny. I mean, on a certain level, are the ways and the times that we interact with the people who run our mass transit system, 
when you're talking to a station manager, um, if they're standing out there, <laughs> there's probably something that's going wrong already. And you can be hit or miss. I've seen, I saw people nodding when I said that about the bus driver, and I saw people shaking their head. It's, I've had both. But, uh. And, you know, a Metro bus is actually in pretty good shape, and bus drivers deal with a lot of stuff. Uh, the biggest problem facing bus drivers is riders who do not want to pay and become belligerent when the bus driver asks them to pay. Uh, assaults have risen uh, because of that. And you know, bus drivers are not law enforcement officials, and they're really not supposed to force the person to pay, but they do say, can you pay, and then arguments ensue, uh, et cetera. Uh, and uh, on the note of just how bad things are, I mean, I think across the board, uh, I'm always surprised when I go out, and I, I'm always out on the system, always interviewing riders, when people tell me, oh, they have no problem at all. They're you know, rarely ever stuck in a delay. Uh, I think it's important to remember, Metro does move more than a million people a day, 700,000 trips on rail, about 400,000 on bus, and there are plenty of people who enjoy using the system. Actually, I, for one, have never been caught in one of these disastrous or calamitous rush hours where you're two hours late. So, um, and you know, when you watch news coverage of Metro, Often what happens, you see a soundbite of somebody talking about how awful it is. Well, I often include soundbites of riders who say they have no issues with the trains. Then I'll say, well, have you read one of those vital sign reports that show that you should be having to? So, I mean, if the trains are only on time 75% of the time, which is a dismal figure, you're still getting 75% of riders getting there on time. I think you just taught me a way of shutting down a conversation I don't want to have. You just say, have you read the vital signs report? And everyone's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, does anybody else have a question, comment, suggestion? Go ahead. Hi, my name is Daniel. I live in Berlief, um, and my two words are expansion plans. Um, so I... I That's right. <laughs> um, I, I, I go to Georgetown, and there's obviously not a metro stop at Georgetown, and so using the actual metro system, using the rail system, is really tough. Um, it's, like, actively difficult. You have to find... Tons of ways to transfer. So when I started working this summer in uh, near the capital, I've just immediately taken a bus. Um, so I know they're probably not thinking about it right now. But what are like? Does the metro have like a long-term expansion plan, and uh, what will that look like for us? So metro does have a plan. Uh, metro has a lot of these things called either Metro Forward or Metro Twenty Five or Momentum. Uh, the board of directors approved an expansion plan a few years ago. It's an it, at this point, it's completely unfunded. One of the key pieces is another tunnel at Roslyn to relieve the bottleneck. In typical American transportation planning fashion, we built a train line out to Dulles, or we're building it out to Dulles Airport, but we didn't build another tunnel to handle the extra capacity that's coming in on the Silver Line. So anyone know how many trains per hour can fit through the Roslyn bottleneck? Yes. 26. 26. Your name, sir. You got a free book on the house. No, that's, that's just... Yeah. 20, uh, 26 trains per hour. That's one train every two and a half minutes. Now, the trains just don't come flying through like, you know, the train has to decelerate, stop, let everyone on, let everyone off, accelerate out. So anything goes wrong, causes a bottleneck at Roslyn. Anyone who rides the blue, sil silver, orange, or blue lines uh, can deal with that. Another big expansion plan is 100% eight-car trains by 2025. That is... Uh, that is partially funded. We've got 728 new rail cars on order, but it's going to take more to get to 100% eight-car trains. Because by the time we get to 2025, the two and 3,000 series rail cars will be up for replacement, right? So right now we're replacing the ones, the fours, and the fives. By the time we get 10 years from now, we're going to have to replace another whole series. 
So I guess then, so I guess then we're not looking at like new stations. We're mostly looking at improvements to well, the existing structure. Yes, uh, part of that expansion is to enhance current station platforms, exits, entrances that are right now at or over capacity. There is a new station coming in at Potomac Yard uh, in Alexandria. That is funded. That is coming. Uh, so you can also find plenty of information about that online. So we'll take another question if somebody wants to come up. But, but, I, but I would say just uh, quickly that um, Chris uh, Leinberger on the previous episode had an interesting perspective on this, which was on the one hand, you could build the infrastructure to suit where people live right now, or you can move people to where the infrastructure currently exists. And so I think part of the thinking from a real estate developer's perspective is that's why there's so much focus on Prince George's County right now, because they have excess capacity in the system there. You may have seen this. You can see the inefficiencies in the system when you're on a rush hour train and it's empty going the other way. I mean, from his perspective, he's saying that's a sign that the entire economy is unbalanced. If we, if we had people living and working and commuting in the opposite direction, there, could, there already is the capacity to handle those people. So it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I feel like it's a, a, a push-pull factor that's going on. That's right. And Metro could run an operating uh, surplus instead of an operating deficit if it could fill the you know, against rush hour. What do they call that uh, when you're going against the rush hour? Yeah, reverse commute. That's why I have a great producer. I forget these words all the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are as crowded as trains are, there are empty trains during rush hour heading out to some of the suburbs where there's no development, there's no jobs yet. So that's one uh, answer to Metro's problems is real estate development, which uh, is coming in, but it's a slow process. There were other hands I saw pop up. Go right ahead. Hey, I'm Drew from H Street. Um, so we, if we know why... The streetcar. The streetcar. Are you using that as a safe track alternative? Just to take my kids like to the park, not, not for right, anything right, like reliable, like I need it for anything. It doesn't really but go very far. It's fun though. Um, so if we know what's preventing Metro Rail from becoming reliable, it's obviously a lot of expensive solutions. The bus, on the other hand, it seems like there's a lot of really simple fixes like dedicated bus lanes, signal priority, um, consolidating stops so it's stopping less often. Like I know that DDOT has that in the plans for the future, and it's like the 40-year plan. But, like what's preventing that from happening sooner and does metro want that as badly as i do the <laughs> one word answer is bureaucracy right uh there is one thing you cannot blame metro on and you can blame metro for a lot lack of dedicated bus lanes really not metro's fault they now they are a party to these talks in all the jurisdictions but uh, Metro wants to have dedicated bus lanes in the District of Columbia where there are basically none. Imagine that. We consider ourselves a progressive city when it comes to transportation. Other than the Georgia Avenue, which is a few blocks, and down on 7th and 9th, which are not enforced, there is no real and, of course, regional dedicated bus lane, right? If you have a dedicated bus lane on Connecticut Avenue, hypothetically, why would that stop at the D.C. line? It should go all the way up into Montgomery County, right? So to answer your question, the, uh, the first study or the first uh, street that could get a dedicated bus lane is 16th Street for the S-Line. They've done myriad studies. They're finally into the implementation. Very frustrating, though, to think that it's going to take a couple more years to get a rush hour bus lane on 16th Street. It's just the nature of transportation planning and the environmental reviews and everything that goes into it. Very frustrating for riders, right? But it isn't as simple as just painting a line and saying, keep the cars out get the buses down there, right? Uh, for years, there has been um, money in the pipeline for a signal, traffic signal priority. That is finally being put to use. 
So there was you know just bureaucratic drudgery getting that through. And that's because the money was about to run out through a grant. That's finally going to be put to use. That gets you a little bit of savings time where a bus can hold the green light. So some of these things are coming. They're coming very slowly, and we really do need them. Go ahead. Sure, thank yes. you. I'm Debbie. I'm a recent transplant from Portland, Oregon. I live in Eckington. So my question is, I'm curious, what are the alternative forms of transportation? I've been to bike shops. I'm an avid biker. So the bike shop seems seem bike shop seems to love the the safe track changes. And so I'm curious, what are what are the new ways of people getting around? And is it increasing a lot of car traffic? So so what are the the behavioral changes people are doing? Excellent question. Jacob Fenston, one of our uh, reporters at WMU, just produced a story on this. Uh, you can find it on our website if you missed it on the air, uh, about the psychology of community, habit forming, habit changing. So as far as traffic, there's been no noticeable impact in D.C., but in Northern Virginia, the Department of Transportation there, VDOT, has noticed a higher traffic counts on some highways. But there are a lot, could be a lot of reasons for that. Traffic is seasonal. Congress in session, there could be an accident that day. But there, there's been noticeably more, but not a huge amount more, traffic on roads in Northern Virginia. You remember the first couple of maintenance surges dealt with uh, the Orange and Silver Line. In D.C., people are finding that, you know, safe track, this is not, it's not a terrible thing, you know, in totality. We often focus on the negatives and how people are going to be inconvenienced. That is certainly the case. It has been disruptive. But people have found a bus that they otherwise didn't use. They are finding that they will ride a bike now. And the uh, Council of Governments and the Transportation Planning Board here for the region has research on this that shows when things like this happen or you you have an extended disruption on a rail line, that people will permanently, a certain amount, will permanently change the biking and walking. And I think that's great, right? Um, We can't see modes as competing against one another, although it's certainly not good that Metro's ridership is declining for the state of of the authority, the transit authority. But people are switching. Now, whether they're going to do it permanently, there are a lot of things baked into that decision. Where you live, maybe you just bought a car, so you have all those sunk costs. You're not going to go back to the train. Uh, you just bought a house or a condo somewhere, and that kind of dictates where you're going. But you know w- what we're finding out through SafeTrack is that people and the transit system, the network in our region, is more resilient than we maybe thought it would be. Right, I think when Safe Track was announced, and maybe I'm even partly responsible for this, although I'd like not to think not, you know, it's it's the metro apocalypse, right? <laughs> it's going to be the end of the of transportation and commuting as we know it. Well, it hasn't turned out that way. It's been disruptive, but not chaotic. And so I would encourage you to listen to Jacob's piece because he talked to some psychologists about this. He even found the, a person who's a run commuter now. They found hey, it's a great way to get into shape. Fortunately, that person has a shower at their office. So I hope that answers your question. So people, you know, it still it remains to be seen too how many people are going to stay away from metro for good or come back when safe track is over. A uh, question, sir, come on up. Hello. I'm Peter. I'm an Orange Line user. I think that Mr. Wiedefeld has been getting a free pass um from from you in part um from commentators generally. Um, and as one who grew up in the, um, within the reach of the New York City transit system, as you did too, um, I think that uh, he is doing things here that he could never get away with in New York. Uh, the whole idea of shutting down a line entirely as opposed to doing things that would delay service, like one tracking, those two things have been mixed together in a way that I think is inexcusable. He is driving people away from Metro, some of them permanently, 
because the lesson that he's teaching is that Metro is unreliable. You can't depend on it getting you where you're going, even if you allow a lot of extra time. And I think that's a terrible thing for him to be doing, and I think he ought to be getting criticism that the media are not giving him for it. He could do, excuse me, he could do the maintenance work one track at a time almost entirely. There are probably a few places where you have to have the whole line shut down, but he has nights for that. And that's a very small part of the work that has to be done. I think you should be giving him okay. push. I'll, uh, I'm not here to defend him, but I'll, I'll respectfully disagree with a couple of points you're making. Uh, I think Metro was already un unreliable prior to Safe Track. Um, and his thinking is that, sure, you could spread this out longer, but then you have a longer duration of the pain. And he wants to try to consolidate this work and get it done faster. Now, uh, as far as the point about single tracking versus an entire segment shutdown, you know, in some ways, single tracking could be worse especially now that there's a new safety rule in place that when trains go through a work zone, they must go no faster than 10 miles an hour. So the next time you're in a single tracking and you wonder why you're crawling, that's why. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where he, he is in a tough spot, but his thinking is, you know, previous general managers did it the other way. They had longer service hours, they relocated maintenance tonight and weekends, it wasn't getting done fast enough. You have the worst on-time performance since 2010 once they start uh, keeping track of the figures. You have the lowest ridership levels in a decade. People are fleeing the system, and he feels like he's got to put a stop to that right now. So there are certainly costs to what he's doing, and I, I think we have been critical of him at times. Um, but I think for the most part he's getting the benefit of the doubt. We have to see how Safe Track turns out and whether or not, in my view as a reporter, Metro makes some cultural and institutional changes to be more open with information with the public and, and reporters. So you actually mentioned this, Martin, in a previous answer, but you referred to something as uh, before Metro went into fortress mode, um, referring to the, uh, to the red line incident that happened last week and maybe just keeping that line there. I mean, there is a question of how transparent the system is and the extent to which you as a reporter or any of the reporters in, that are working this beat, um, their ability to tell stories about it is conditioned by data and storylines that come from the official channels. So is, is it possible or is it something that you worry about that pretty much the only information we know about this system comes from people who have sort of a vested interest in us thinking that they're doing a good job? Uh, I'll be happy to answer that, but did you want to uh, rebut me at all? Well, I just wanted to ask whether a part of this problem that we have had over the years is with contracting and the bad supervision, bad quality yes. control, and yes. so on. Yes, Metro even has admitted that, yes. Because we've had all these um, physical problems that seem to have been discovered after they exist for years. That is true. It's not just the fact that a railroad has gotten old. It's been bad management. It's been not uh, ending inspections that should have been continued. If you have read the National Transportation Safety Board's final report on the Lafont Plaza disaster, one of the key findings was that Metro had inspections that were going on to check for water, to check for cables, uh, you know, the, the ceiling sleeves. 
you know, you have any, think of an electric cable you have at home, right? You have a nick in it or an opening in it. That's, that's dangerous, right? Well, think of that cable carrying hundreds of volts in an underground environment where you have filth and dirt and water getting onto that cause, of, cause an electrical fire. Well, Metro had been inspecting those things and stopped on a regular basis, and voila, you have the LaFont Plaza situation. So I, I, you are right about that, and Metro even fessed up to this earlier this year when people were asking questions about what did you do the last five years when you were doing all this track work, why didn't you get more done? Well, they admitted that their project management wasn't where it needed to be. Now, you asked me a question about Metro and transparency and how difficult that makes their job, and are we dependent upon you know what Metro says for reporting? Well, officially, as a journalist, and say something happens, right, we're required to get Metro's explanation as to what went wrong, right? But that doesn't mean we have to stop there. And, you know, I and other reporters who cover the Transit Authority have sources both inside the Transit Authority or maybe on the board of directors or inside the local DOTs in District, Virginia, and Maryland who also know what's going on, have access to documents that help us tell a more complete picture. But, no, I mean, Metro's not going to volunteer bad news, was surprised, actually, that I was able to get the email that Mr. Wiedefeld sent to all Metro staff detailing what happened uh, with that red light, red signal over on last Tuesday. But, no, it's a struggle. And that, I think that goes across the board for journalists everywhere who are covering large bureaucracies, right? It's not like you just show up and say, can I have this, and they just hand it right to you on a silver platter. Yeah, we have time for one more question. Yeah, go ahead. Just a little one, but I'm amused having to manage kids and their smart trip cards and the like. I cannot um, make sure that my kids have the dollars that they need on their smart trip cards using their website. So speaking of contracting out and mismanagement, why is it that I can instantly click and have the amount deducted from a credit card on Amazon.com in billions of websites, yet WMATA... When I'm on their site, it takes four to five days for the dollars to appear on the smart trip card. And this is, again, minor. I just make sure I do it in advance as a friendly mom, <laughs> making sure she covers her kids' trips down to wherever they need to go. But Well, smart trip is 1990s technology. How many businesses do you deal with today that are using stuff from 20, 25 years ago, right? So Metro was looking into doing a modern, fair payment system where you could have a chip, uh, I guess kind of similar to the chips that they're putting in uh, credit cards now. Maybe it would be a little bit different. Okay. It would be a chip where your money would come right out of your account or like a government ID card with a smart trip or your, like when you're at Starbucks and you use your, your cell phone. Uh, the trial did not go well. Mr. Wiedefeld thought that they had other priorities, so that was canceled. $25 million down the tubes. We're stuck with Smart Trip for the foreseeable future. And it well, works okay, but, yeah, it's not the most responsive and system. From web design point of view, I have cards that were killed ages ago that are still on my list of cards that belong to me. Again, just poor design. Anyway, oh, well, enough. Got to be brilliant at the basics. 
This has been Metropocalypse Live. Thanks to Brendan Sweeney for joining me up here and to everyone who came out tonight. A huge thank you to Sarah Belline and our friends at Kramer Books for hosting us. If you haven't already, please join our Metropocalypse Facebook group where you can get up-to-date news about the system and discuss the latest stories with WAMU reporters and producers and fellow riders. We'll return next Monday when I ride a bus bridge with a sitting member of Congress. We'll talk to rail transit experts about what exactly happened with that red signal violation. Thanks for listening.